Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities needed it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Today, I talk with Michigan State Representative and Minority Leader Donna Lazinski. She's a management consultant turned legislator. We talked about how she gets things done in the political minority, including pre-K for her state's kids. We talked about her state's crazy political dynamics and why she's optimistic about the Democrats' political future in Michigan. She also makes a compelling pitch for Michigan paddleboarding and demolition derbies. Enjoy. Representative Donna Lazinski, welcome to An Honorable Profession. It is wonderful to be speaking with you today. Hello. I am glad to be here. This is a great opportunity. So let's start with how are things in Michigan and how are things in Ann Arbor right now? Michigan is always a focal point for national politics, and there's a lot in the news lately. So why don't you give us an update? Yes, there is. We just concluded our Democratic convention yesterday afternoon. So I'm really, was really proud to stand as the House Democratic leader here in Michigan to stand with Governor Whitmer, our Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist, Secretary of State, and Attorney General as they were renominated to run in elections here coming up in November. And um, is exactly what I was hoping for coming out of a convention, a lot of in- excitement and enthusiasm and absolutely no drama, which is a sharp contrast right now with my Republican colleagues and Republican hopefuls across the aisle. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that drama, which is incredibly serious. You've had the kidnapping attempt of the governor. You have colleagues engaging in the big lie about January 6th. Can you talk a little bit about the state of the Republican Party and how you think voters in your state are responding to it? Thank you. I really appreciate that question. And I think part of that showed up on Friday when by um, deadline, the Republicans had to pick their lieutenant governor nominee. Um, They just barely made it under the deadline. They were within about 45 minutes. And the person they selected for lieutenant governor had never met or spoken to, in his own words, on Twitter that morning at 11 a.m., the gubernatorial nominee for the Republicans. You know, what we're seeing is a complete collapse and chaos in our Republican Party here. I have served for the last two years with 18 colleagues um, who joined a lawsuit in Texas to overturn every vote in Michigan in last in a year ago, November's election. I serve with colleagues who have brought false electors. Uh, to our chamber um, and have asked for their censure or removal from the chamber based on their lack of upholding of their oath to uphold both the American and the Michigan state constitution. I'm also serving with colleagues who support the militia groups and others who came with their assault rifles to our Capitol as myself and my colleagues from the 2020 legislature sat 10 feet inside of swinging swinging doors with 
a thin blue line between us and just a terrible, terrible mob of angry men with rifles. Michigan is craving solutions um, to policy problems that we have here in education, economic development, and women's reproductive freedom. And they are looking strongly towards Democrats for those. So I'd be happy to talk about any of those policy areas as well as other things this morning. Absolutely. And I want to ask you about all those as well as your path into public service. But I guess one thing I'm really curious about because it has been so high profile is the two parties are always in competition for seats. But at some level, we need a responsible Republican Party that is connected to reality. And so what's it like trying to govern in a state uh, where your some of your colleagues are engaging in absolutely anti-democratic behavior? So in order to have a real conversation about policy, you need to have two grown-ups in the room. And frankly, um, we have struggled to do that at times here in Michigan. We're seeing folks who either don't have the courage to stand up for things they privately say are unacceptable. That doesn't do us, the public, or Michigan any good. Um, It has been very difficult to try and move past some of the anti-democratic actions that my colleagues have been taking in the moments when we must come together to sign a budget to move money from the federal government to the state budget when we've had the American Recovery Plan and desperate infrastructure and other needs here in Michigan. And it's not even that you move past it or that you set it aside. You almost just have to look at what is exactly in front of you in that moment. We are divided government here in Michigan. So we have a Republican Speaker of the House and a Republican Senate Majority Leader and a Democratic Governor. But no bills get to the governor's desk without, frankly, Democratic support in the House and Senate, because the Republican Party itself is so fractured that they can't often and and cannot pull together the votes needed to get work done. I'll give you an example that I think is different than many people think happen in government. We have had a couple large economic development proposals in front of us. And Democrats, my caucus under my leadership has delivered 47 yes votes and the Republican caucus, which is larger than ours by um, six members at that time, could only deliver 41 votes out of 58 members. And so we're seeing Democrats govern for prosperity, govern for the economy. It's where it's where we are and where we've been, but it's really shining through right now. That is it's a scary proposition, but. We've all been proud of the leadership that the Democrats in Michigan have shown that not only reflects well in your state, but frankly, helps the the Democratic Party in in contested states all over the country. Thank I want to ask, how did you how did you find yourself in this <laughs> in this position? What's your path to public service? I guarantee you, you were not thinking about having to deal with men storming the Capitol with assault rifles uh, or dealing with sort of fundamental threats to our democracy and disinformation campaigns. So so how did you, how did you find yourself where you are today? Thank you. Um, I appreciate that question. I'm going to make the joke. My, my husband doesn't really care for this joke, but um, I tend to be a person who reinvents myself about every seven to 10 years. So I joke that um, I express the seven-year itch professionally instead of personally and that he appreciates it. My skill of trade is I am a management consultant. So I do C-suite um, executive level consulting and have done that across across the United States. Um, and then I started my own company. And so I was running my own company when in the education space, when the opportunity um, to 
get a fellowship. In Michigan, we have this fantastic thing called the Michigan Political Leadership Program that takes 12 Democrats and 12 Republicans every year. And you do a one a year-long fellowship where every month you're spending a weekend away with this cohort of 24 and learning how to develop evidence-based policy. And because my company was in the education space, I, I wanted to learn more about what it took to have a state rise to top 10 in education in the nation. So I did that, and then I ended up running for school board. Michigan has the strongest term limits, strictest term limits in the nation. So you can only serve in the House of Representatives for six years, and you can never return. And so with that type of forced turnover, there are opportunities arise for folks to enter the political sphere in a very meaningful way on a fairly regular basis, but once every six years. And so my seat actually opened up earlier, the seat I'm sitting in, uh, the representative in the seat uh, decided to run for Congress and left after two terms. And so I just, I threw my hat in the ring. I'm going to be very frank. I um, had run for a nonpartisan office on school board. I'd never run for a partisan office. I wasn't particularly familiar with partisan politics in that way. And I was running against a, we'll just say preferred candidate, someone who had kind of been in line, who had been who had been walking up the typical steps that folks take when they want to run for office. But because I wasn't particularly engaged in partisan politics, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to. And just like anything else in life, I just kind of grabbed hold of it, set the goal, wrote the plan and worked the plan. I had a fantastic group of young people around me. I had fantastic support from my family and all, all of the um, friends and business associates I developed over the last 25 years here where I ran. And uh, it all worked out. I won that primary election by under 300 votes and uh, went on to win a half Democratic, half Republican district by one percentage point. My next election, I won by 20 points because I know how to serve my entire community, but it was a year-long marathon of a primary and a general election. Uh, I don't, I look back and I think, oh my God, if I know what I know now, I never would have done it, um, but I'm so grateful that I did. Can you give some advice? Because I think there may be people looking to run for office and they may think there are people, in, quote unquote, in line ahead of them. What does that look like? How should they approach that question of of running and uh, when they're, when the time is right? Yeah. You know, that's one of the things we have to be very, very clear about is the deciders are the voters. And I took my experience and the work that I, and the direction that I would like to see the state go in and the things I'd like to get done to accomplish for our community directly to voters. So I did not have two pages of endorsements. I did not have every sitting elected official. In fact, I had two elected officials in uh, 14 township, three cities and two villages area, you know, formally endorsing me. But I took I just took what I wanted to do directly to my friends and neighbors. We knocked over 15,000 doors um, and we made six passes through our universe by the time uh, we were we were through. And so it was just it was just door to door. And I got feedback every day about whether or not the vision I had and how to grow my vision for our community at every door. And so I truly won at the doors um, by talking to people and sharing my hope for, for our future. 
That's inspiring. Hopefully there are out there people getting out there ready to to knock on doors as we speak. And- I will tell you my caucus, we are uh, looking to flip the chamber here. Uh, we have for the first time independent redistricting. So we have a level playing field. Our caucus has already knocked to over 285,000 doors this summer. And that's pre-Labor Day. So wow. yes. Okay. <laughs> I truly well, go- believe in door knocking. I believe it's the, I believe it's the heart of any campaign is to talk one-on-one with voters. I love it. I love it. I agree. I couldn't agree more. So uh, six years is, is it's it may feel like a long time, but it's actually an incredibly short time to try to move an agenda. Can you talk about how you identified your priorities and then, you know, some of your successes and maybe even some places where uh, you weren't able to get it done this time, but you hopefully set the foundation for a future? Yeah, good. Thank you. The best description I've heard of the, these six years are the longest days you'll ever have and the shortest years that will ever pass. And that is how it feels. Each individual day can feel very long moving from one thing to the next, but the years have gone by very quickly. So let me just tell you a little bit again about about kind of where I began. So my kids attended a Title I elementary school, which means it's an elementary school that has a large proportion of kids on free and reduced lunch. And for me, seeing how some kids were moving ahead and some kids were falling behind, uh, really touched me very deeply. And I started to take my management consulting experience and say, all right, why is this happening? So I identified summer learning loss as a root cause, developed a program for my kids' school, just one of those kind of kitchen table type projects, put together teams of teachers, parents, kids about what they could and were willing to do over the summer. Anyway, my kids' school um, was successful with it the first summer. Other schools asked for it. I ended up in 38 states and helping tens of thousands of students in districts um, with the program. So when I did the fellowship and really kind of dove into policy around how do we help every person in our state reach their full potential, that's what I carried with me into the legislature. My first two years were under full Republican control, so Republican governor, Republican House and Senate. But before I entered the legislature, um, I had been appointed by the Democratic governor and retained under the Republican governor to look at how do we help early childhood and continuing education over the summer. So I had Republican relationships there. And I hope that every every person who's in who's in a legislature does has what I have either written down or in their mind. I have kind of a little list I kept in my desk of things I wanted to accomplish that I wanted to check off in my six years. And frankly, I wanted to move the ball forward on universal preschool. That was the number one thing I wanted to do. If I was going to end up having to make this huge pivot away from my company, away from corporate opportunities, I wanted to make a generational change. Again, if I know now what I knew then, I don't know that I would have aimed quite so high. But my point being here is that representing a Republican, combined Republican-Democratic difference district, serving under Republican majority and then under Governor Whitmer as our Democratic governor with Republican House and Senate, we were able to get it done for four-year-olds. Um, we were able to increase the Great Start Readiness Program by 25,000 slots, more than eliminate the wait list, and make sure every child who's in a family of medium income, which in Michigan is around $65,000 per year for a family of four, and under has the opportunity to attend free preschool of the highest quality. And that's that's tremendous for me. Um, but somewhere around the beginning of my second term, I kind of thought my goal was to move the needle 
And to accomplish that at the beginning of my third term, um, that will make generational change in Michigan uh, for kids starting school ready to begin in school. Because frankly, kids who start behind rarely ever end up ahead. So I'm tremendously proud of that accomplishment in partnership with my Democratic governor and, and Republican colleagues. That is a huge accomplishment. Those that that those dollars invested early have generational, as you said, generational impacts, not only on the kids, but frankly, on the families and then their kids, right? That's the- absolutely it is. It's it's a complete shift. You know, we talk about wanting to break cycles and shift perspectives and and dramatically change opportunity. And preschool education is one of the things that's been studied um, right here in Michigan. It's called the High Point Study which really started um, 30 years ago, this whole research-based movement towards understanding more opportunity, less incarceration, less social services, more high school diplomas, more college degrees that happens with kids with high-quality preschool. That school, High Point, where that original study came out of, is only as the crow flies about 12 miles from my house. And I'm so very proud that we were able to get this done. Yeah. And I and it's it's great because it speaks to you in both your roles, right? Because both as a as a legislator at this local level than at the state level, but frankly, like from a business perspective, it's just a great return on investment. No, it is. It is. So it's one thing to get elected in a in a, a contested district. It's another thing to move a policy agenda forward. It's a whole different thing to be the leader of your of the caucus and yes. try to herd <laughs> herd cats and keep the party keep your uh, colleagues um, together and coordinated. Can you talk a little bit about what that job is like? Because that's a very different job than even just being a an elected it official. Is. It is. I don't think anything can quite prepare you for it. It really is a first among equals role. So different than any other leadership role I've had, where I am the president of my company and I have employees. I'm on a consultant team working with a large client. There's defined roles, um, there's defined hierarchies, and there's defined consequences. What is fascinating about being a leader of a caucus is that, particularly a caucus in the minority, is that there are very few things you can do other than persuasive leadership and servant leadership, Um, working as hard as you can to make sure your reps have what they need to serve their communities, while at the same time laying out a path for our caucus to deliver for the Michigan people in the ways we can as the minority and to communicate what Michigan could look like if we were in the majority. It was not easy. I'll be frank. As we look at all the different personalities, each of us are one vote. And each of us very much want that vote to reflect our community. And when it comes down to it, and we are looking at times where we needed to hold together, to hold the line on something, that may be, it may be that that a few representatives thought it would be better for their community if they voted the other way, but we were trying to exercise what political and quorum power we had in that moment when we knew our Republican colleagues were splintered. Even if it was just to delay a vote, to open up the opportunity for us to negotiate on a different point, I have never talked so much in my life. I have never made so many phone calls. It is it is literally hand-to-hand and heart-to-heart conversations. I'm mean, really trying to make sure everyone understands the path that we're on, the reason we're doing this, 
And when it's come down to it, when it was time to deliver for Michigan, our caucus delivered every single time. We batted a thousand, and I am incredibly proud of that. That is fantastic. And congratulations for just surviving. In all the political conferences and New Deal conferences we go to, the folks who are majority and minority leaders and legislatures, it sounds like by far the hardest job in politics. It is a very unique leadership job um, because you can't, I can't fire anybody and I can't promote anybody. So two of the big tools that as a business leader you have, I can't change anyone's pay. I can't move them to another department. This really is about how do you lead from your values and how do you set a path and how do you ensure that when it comes down to it, you're only asking people to stick with you when you really need them to. Wow. I've Well, hopefully all this work and time and effort and the discipline, frankly, that it takes gets the next person into uh, as as a majority leader. And so which brings me to this question of six years is so limited and you moved in and moved this agenda and you've shown leadership, but your term is coming to an end. How do do you think about are you at that seven year itch of reinventing yourself again? I am. You know, it's really interesting. So I am going to have to do that again. I had thought, honestly, I was going to spend July thinking about it, August having the conversations I needed to have in September making making a decision. But what's happened in Michigan with the Dobbs decision and with the fall of Roe versus Wade, combined with the Independent Redistricting Commission, combined with the polling results that we are getting back every day, Michigan is in the hunt for majority. We're one of really only three states across the nation that that is looking at Senate and House chambers that are completely viable chambers to flip. It has been tremendous to watch um, the change in the electorate. Post-Dobbs, gas prices falling, major legislative action coming out of Washington, D.C., and in Michigan, our unemployment is falling. We're right around 4% and falling right now. And so we have tremendous opportunity for folks here in Michigan. Folks are feeling better about the economy and inflation, still concerned about inflation, um, but very concerned about human rights and women's rights. And so my complete focus has been on the 20 plus campaigns we're running in the House right now to pick up majority. We're at, we flipped a seat from Republican to Democratic in the spring in a special election. And that was a seat that swung 16 points from Republicans to Democrats. Um, and that was pre-Dobbs decision. So with Frankly, the chaos of our Republican Party and the number of folks who have come out of the far, far right to win the primaries, the window is wide open for us as Democrats to take majority. Again, because we have a much more level playing field, we went from being tilted Republican to near a near level playing field. And uh, the advantage is ours right now. Wow. And it's six seats that you need to pick up? Well, we're at 53 right now and 56 is majority. Okay. Wow, that's and, close. Um, you know, a lot of our seats, because it's a more level playing field and with redistricting, have gotten a little flatter, a little bit tighter. Um, so we're paying attention and we're working in a number of races. Um, but really, there's there's kind of eight key seats um, that we need, that we are playing very hard in to pick up that last bit to get to majority. Can you talk a little bit about that citizens redistricting effort? I think a lot of us are frustrated with these hyper gerrymandered seats. 
um, that allow the elected officials to pick their citizens rather than having citizens pick their elected officials. Can you talk about how it happened in, um, in Michigan and what it means? So it was fascinating here in Michigan. So we've been talking about this for a long time, but Republicans have been in control of our Senate here for over 40 years. So they've redistricted over and over for to remain in power. In Michigan, it's been 36 years that Democrats have won the popular vote. More folks have voted for Democrats in the House and the Senate, and yet have not had Democratic majority. Ten years ago, we had it for one term in the House. We don't really reflect Michigan. So Michiganders were very upset about that, and rightfully so. We are a, truly a purple state, but folks could see that the votes just weren't adding up. And so we had a powerful volunteer group called Voters Not Politicians. And for, I think, only the second time in Michigan history, an entire volunteer force collected over half a million petition signatures in a period of 180 days to create a constitutional amendment for an independent redistricting commission. As legislators, we cannot alter our constitution without going to a vote of the people. So they didn't want to make a law. They wanted to change the constitution. And so we had our first independent redistricting commission here in Michigan, and it has resulted in districts that are still slightly tilted uh, Republican. Uh, the independent redistricting committee prioritized something called communities of interest, which they were unable to define as the number one priority. And uh, partisanship was their number three or four priority. So they are still tilted slightly Republican, but it's much more level. And I think the results will reflect more the Democratic lean of our state. Yeah, it's uh, we have we have a citizens redistricting out here in California as well. And it's always good when everyone feels a little unhappy with the maps uh, that they draw. <laughs> <laughs> that is how that is how this sometimes turns out. It was a great social experiment for us here. And, you know, we will see how this plays out, but I'm hoping that overall vote reflects the makeup of the House and the Senate. So I know you're hyper-focused on 2022, but all of us are hyper-focused, also hyper-focused on Michigan in 2024. Can you talk a little bit about how the Inflation Reduction Act and some of the federal legislation, is it having an impact on Michigan voters, both in their real lives, but also in their where they land politically that'll pay benefits we hopefully in 2024. So you know as we're as we're looking at uh, the inflation reduction act the thing I'm looking to for my guidepost there is the American recovery plan on the ARPA dollars. So when we look at that Michigan was one of the last to allocate our federal dollars to bring them home from Washington DC. We took over 15 months and in fact we're hoping to take a vote maybe next month to get the final final dollars back from that. Um, that has been incredibly frustrating because that has also helped drive inflation in Michigan because everybody else got in line for materials, for labor, for all of the things that are needed to make those incredible infrastructure um, investments, education investments, and others. And Michigan was last in line, which means the price was higher. As we look at the Inflation Reduction Act actions, my hope is that we're going to move much more swiftly. I believe we will. I believe we have to. Unfortunately, in the way of partisan politics, Michigan is a full-time legislature. 
June 30th, uh, we voted to approve our fiscal year budget, which runs October to October. And the Republicans have not called a voting day of session yet and have let us know that through the election, they may hold two voting days. Typically, we would be in session for nine weeks prior, prior to the election, and we're looking at two days. So once again, I'm very concerned um, that Michigan is going to fall to the back of the line on some of these allocations, is going to um, risk as we did uh, when House Democrats were going to take unallocated federal dollars and pull them back and just say, hey, you can't even bring them home now. We're taking them back. And uh, Congresswoman Debbie Dingell really went to bat for us here in Michigan to make sure we didn't lose our allocations because uh, the Republican legislature was so slow to get them home. I think I've Myself and my colleagues have raised enough noise about that, that we'll move more swiftly with the Inflation Reduction Act. But I'll tell you what was really exciting to me. I've been working very hard on economic development here in Michigan. I think most folks know Michigan is the home of the combustion engine automobile. That time, obviously, is coming to a very, very big, uh, you know, fork in the road, uh, intersection, (laughs) however you want to call it, with electric vehicles. And so for me to stand with President Biden and to be at the White House as he signed the CHIPS Act, which opens the door to advanced manufacturing and innovation here in the United States to compete on a more level playing field uh, with the Chinese and with other nations to create semiconductor chips is just an incredible opportunity. And that is something I'm looking forward to Michigan swiftly stepping into the future with. I love it. I, I yeah, that's a that's a extremely tangible investment that's happening not only immediately but will hopefully happen and have again decades of impact, yes. uh, positive impact. In my uh, final question, I would love uh, this is something we ask all our guests. But if I had twenty four hours in your district, how should I spend it? Oh my gosh, you would be so lucky. <laughs> Um, My district is beautiful. It is a combination of um, rural and parklands. We have the Huron River, which runs through it, which is a watershed that runs through um, about a third of the state of Michigan with gorgeous fishing and rolling hills. You better get ready because my secret talent is balance. And I am an avid paddleboarder. Knock on wood, in a decade in uh, rough seas or calm waters, I have never been toppled yet from my board. And I would love to take you on a tour on where we can paddleboard down the river, go through some of our small town centers, get out for a lunch or an ice cream or a coffee, and just see see the beauty as we are surrounded by near neighbors of the city of Ann Arbor with a great institution I am an alumni of, the University of Michigan, um, as well as vibrant um, towns and villages. So it's a fantastic place to meet people. I'm looking forward this coming week to one of the greatest fairs in the state of Michigan, the Chelsea State Fair, where I'm a particular fan of the Demolition Derby Night. <laughs> that is, uh, <laughs> that's the first Demolition Derby Night we've had uh, mentioned on this podcast. Well, I'm a mother of three sons, and so uh, I will say I've had my fair share of watching cars uh, crash into each other, limp away, and see the talent of those brave drivers who intentionally hit other people. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I mean, so I hope uh, I hope you, all your work pays off, both tangibly for kids in your state as well as to, for the economy. And I hope it uh, results in a majority. And then I hope that uh, you're able to get you back to talk about the reinvention 
may involve paddleboarding, it sounds like. No. Uh, <laughs> is there a professional paddleboarding circuit yeah. <laughs> uh, that you can you can go on? But um, we love to ha- we love having you part of New Deal. Uh, we love having you really do good work in a swing state that that benefits not only your state but the rest of us. Um, and so, thank you for your thank you for your service. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity today. I look forward to seeing you again. All right, sounds good. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.